as part of my job as evangelist, I'm always on the lookout for Bible verses and quotes that communicate something important in a short, clear and punchy way. As I was making my way through some old books this week, I found a quote by Charles Spurgeon that helpfully points us in the direction of what I want to explore with you this evening. When I am weak, then am I strong. Grace is my shield and Christ my song. I later actually found out that Spurgeon had borrowed that from Isaac Watts, who said it 100 years earlier. And here I am borrowing that from Spurgeon 150 years later. Biblical truth does not get old. It is true today as it was when Spurgeon said it 150 years ago. When Isaac Watts said it 250 years ago. And what the men in our text experienced in our passage today, 2,500 years ago. When I am weak, then am I strong. When planning the message for this evening, I hadn't discussed with David what he was going to be speaking about in this morning's sermon. But just like these things often do, it has worked out that they connect in a wonderful way. The way in which we looked at the Feast of Booths, uh, a coming together, a rejoicing as the people remember and look back and recognize God's abundant provision whilst the people of Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. For, for 40 years in the wilderness, they had clothes and sandals that never wore out. Morning by morning, they gathered the manna as much as they could eat in the middle of the wilderness. Yet another example of God providing and keeping his people. And that is the theme of our sermon this evening. If you were here a few weeks back, you may remember that when we looked at the, the first 18 verses in chapter 3 of Daniel, it's this great passage where King Nebuchadnezzar, the, the most powerful man on the planet at the time, he started a campaign to kidnap and then to assimilate the most talented teenage boys from Judah into the Babylonian culture. Within that group were four boys, all young teenagers at the time, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. For three years, you'll remember, they were, they were marinated into the, the Babylonian way of living. Given the very best Chaldean education, preparing them for service at the king's palace. It was after this time that Nebuchadnezzar was troubled by a dream and he demanded that his people told him its interpretation. This led to, to God revealing the dream and its interpretation to Daniel, which he went on to reveal to this powerful king. You remember in response to Daniel revealing the dream and its meaning, Nebuchadnezzar created a similar image to that what he dreamt about, but with the distinct change of having it all represent his own kingdom. Proud of this image and all it represented, he then planned the grand reveal ceremony. He demanded that anyone and everyone came along to bow down and to worship it. Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they refused to compromise their faith and bow to this image which led to the Chaldeans reporting this back to the furious king who then starts threatening 
than with being thrown in the fiery furnace. And this is where we'll be picking up our passage back up this evening. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us of the intention or the, the motive as to why these Chaldeans were quick to come to the king and tell him of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego's refusal to bow down to his image. In doing so, they would have known that the king would have reacted with fury. And given his track record up to this point and the, the threats given by the herald, they knew that this was most likely going to be a threat to the boys' lives. Most of the commentaries that I've studied agree that this reporting back to Nebuchadnezzar was likely to have been motivated out of jealousy. If you remember, we, we saw in chapter 2 after Daniel gave the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the king responded by promoting Daniel over the Chaldeans. This probably didn't go down very well. We can look at that now. Go back to, to chapter 2, verse 48. It's Daniel chapter 2, verse 48. The king gave Daniel high honours and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So the, Chal the Chaldeans were, were keen to remind Nebuchadnezzar of this decision. Chapter 3, verse 12, they said, There are certain Jews who you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's their way of saying, You've done so much, O king, and look how they've, they've paid you back. A tactic, I am sure, designed to add more salt to the prideful king's wounds. And we may have experienced this kind of point scoring growing up if we've got brothers and sisters. An eagerness to point out any naughtiness in our siblings. Maybe you've seen this in the workplace. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of it. Work colleagues quick put a spotlight on an error or something that didn't quite go to plan so that they can come in and lift themselves up and with a motive of being seen higher or better by those in charge. It's possible that this was the Chaldeans' motive in reporting back the fact that the boys refused to bow down and worship this image and his gods. But nevertheless, report back they did. Verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar was then filled with fury. This is chapter 3, sorry, chapter 3, verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar was then filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Seven times hotter. It's worth noting here that the furnace needn't have had its temperature raised to do its required task. This hot, fiery furnace was already capable of making bricks and melting gold. But like we see through scripture time and time again, God so often in his sovereign design is glorified through the odds seemingly stacked against his people. This is a great way for us to, to see his power. We may think of 
Gideon's army and how it started off with 32,000 soldiers reduced down to just 300 to make it clear that it was God who was in control of the saving and not that of a powerful army. Judges chapter 7. As one preacher said, God has a way of taking something small and doing something big. And here in our passage, we see another example of a situation which seems helpless, doesn't it? A command from the angry king to set this already raging furnace up by seven notches. We may think of one of those stunt bike riders who jump over cars. Imagine them already facing the what already looks like an impossible task of having to jump over ten cars. But then, as the audience waits with bated breath, the rider asks for another 70 cars to be added to the stunt. Here, we have the, the scorching, fiery furnace cranked up to molten temperatures. And yet, these three men do not blink. As John Calvin writes in his commentary on Daniel, it is necessary to observe with what unbroken spirit these three holy men persisted in the fear of God. Though they knew that they were in danger of instant death, they did not turn aside from their straightforward course, but treated God's glory of greater value than their own life. They knew that at every point so far, God has been right there with them and they trusted him and his eternal purposes. We may think of the, the words to Joshua shortly after the death of Moses. Told to arise and go over the Jordan into the land where God was leading them. A land that had been spied out and was known to contain these giants that made themselves look like grasshoppers in comparison. Numbers chapter 13. And God told them, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua chapter 1 verse 9. And as we're reminded in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Who is with us? God. A great example that we, we never stop relying on the grace of God. It's not something that we ever graduate away from. Every day, every second, we are relying on him sustaining us both physically and spiritually. And it's an important truth to remind ourselves time and time again. Grace isn't just a thing that we can recall back to our testimony when we were saved. An important aspect of the gospel, but then after the point of justification, it's back then over to us. Oh no. God initiates our faith and he will finish it. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. It's his power. It's his strength. It's his grace poured into the weakest of vessels through his Holy Spirit. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 29. 
It's, it's such a cult, counter-cultural understanding, but it's absolutely true. It's the very reason that we can delight in our weakness, in any insults or hardships, persecution and difficulties, because when we are weak, then he is strong. His grace is sufficient for you if you are in Christ. His power is made perfect in our weakness. And just like the Apostle Paul, we can boast all the more gladly about our weakness so that Christ's power may rest on us. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Church, we should, we should be clear that this is not an act of the flesh, although it is obedient. This would be a terrible message and certainly not a, a Christian one if it somehow came across that we're to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. For our eyes to be on ourselves, just enough positive self-talk for us to believe in ourselves enough. For us to stare into the mirror each morning, speaking positive affirmations over ourselves. No. This is about taking our eyes off of ourselves and placing them squarely on Christ. The world may hear this passage and see three heroic men, but as Christians... We can read this passage and see so much more. We see their God, our God. Through the good times and bad times, through each and every season, they knew that God was with them. From being raised in the faith, being taught the things of God during their childhood, back with their families in Jerusalem from having God's protection whilst they were stolen and taken to Babylon, by receiving God's favour in their promotion as prefects, they knew God to be faithful. And they knew that the, the only thing that was hanging in the balance in this very moment was how much time that they had left on earth. But they knew they knew that if they were to die, that they would wake up in the presence of the Lord and that they would not look back even for one second. A faith that just like Paul can say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians chapter 1 verse 21. Nebuchadnezzar, for all his noise and violence, thinks that he is the one holding all the cards. But for Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, he couldn't be more wrong. It's a win-win. If it is God's will for them to be saved from the flames, then they know that they shall live yet more days in obedience to their God. Yet if it is not his will, then they will go on to be with him. In their inheritance... It's a perfect eternity, a paradise in the very presence of their Lord and Saviour. Full assurance in knowing that if they are to depart from their life here on earth in this moment, that where they are about to go is unspeakably better. Again, John Calvin writes in his commentary on Daniel, Maybe one of the reasons why we as Christians can be fearful when faced with calamity is that we ought to spend more time meditating upon our future life. 
In doing so, this world will become cheap to us. And therefore, we'll be, we will be more prepared when necessary to pour forth our blood in testimony to the truth. It could be a useful exercise for us to consider this evening. How often do we meditate upon eternity? There is an, an eternal reality beyond this transient life and it is the destiny of every human being. If you are in Christ, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, if you have repented from living a life in rebellion to God and have been born again, then what a glorious future you have. And if the opposite is true, if you are not in Christ, if you die in your sins, then the Bible tells us that those in that state will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. And yet, because our God is patient, gracious and merciful, you still have time. All the while you, you have breath this evening, now, know the urgency to indeed repent and turn to Christ as Lord and Saviour, and in doing so, receive his righteousness as your own. But here, in our text, we have three men that are certain of their future destination. They have full assurance, steadfast and faithful until the end, in obedience to their God. We read in James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, running with endurance can sound exhausting, can't it? And sometimes it can be, but running right alongside us. Matching us stride for stride is our Lord. And as we grow tired and as we grow weary, there he is ready to carry us. Christians know that we are not supposed to be the hero of this story, of our story. Christ is. We lift our tired eyes off of ourselves and place them onto the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. We do this because this very God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, Ademnigo, is our God. The unchanging God of the Bible that me and you have at this very moment if you are in Christ. It's incredible, isn't it? When we pray, we pray to him. He is with us. He is the source of strength. And we remember afresh this evening, there were not different grades of Christians. Some that are super Christians and some that have just about sneaked into the kingdom of God while no one was looking. If you are in Christ, if you are born again, 
here this evening, then you were chosen by him before the foundations of the earth. You are written in the Lamb's book of life, and he loves you, and he will strengthen you, and he will keep you until the day that your time has come and when you are called to leave this earth. As Christians, we are eternally secure. It's not based on our performance as Christians. It's not because we deserve it, but because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. You may have noticed in scripture, God does not tend to do his work through the A-team. For those that are the wisest, for those that are the, the best communicators, for those that are the strongest or the most popular. No. He delights in using the weak, broken vessels. He displays his strength through our weakness. As Christians, we empty ourselves of ourselves and we seek to be filled by him. And if you're sitting here this evening feeling weak in your faith or discouraged or weary, then allow these truths to encourage you. Lean on our God. Lean on this God. Put on his strength. In verse 20, he then ordered some of the, the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar is now wanting to set an example. He would have been thinking that he needs to get a very clear message out to make an example of these boys. A leader such as Nebuchadnezzar doesn't allow for people to have differing opinions. It's his way or the highway. And to stamp this out, he calls upon his mighty men, the tough guys of his army, to tie up each of the young men. Then these men were, were bound in their cloaks, verse 21, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Verse 22, because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace we spoke last time about the fact that these fiery furnaces were uncontrollable at the best of times let alone now it's been stoked up seven times hotter and heat may seem like a foreign concept for us to imagine this evening but we can see this in these men these senior army officials that they were tasked with marching the boys towards the furnace they approach this blazing flame and in doing so the hungry flames swallow them up surely making Nebuchadnezzar even more angry if that was possible but here we now have it these young men tied up pushed into the furnace and it would seem now that all hope was lost at these temperatures you know anything thrown into a fire would normally have disappeared pretty quickly but not on this occasion. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counsellors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king, 
He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of a fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Do you remember a, a few verses back when Nebuchadnezzar mockingly asked, Who is this God that will deliver you out of my hands? I wonder if it's at this point where the penny drops to King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 24, he was astonished. We can imagine him, can't we? Mouth wide open, shocked. He asks those nearest to him, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? Surely he knows the answer. This is a, a rhetorical question, the, the same kind of way that we might ask someone, am I going mad? The crowd of witnesses confirmed, just as shocked as what they are seeing as Nebuchadnezzar. True, O king, they say. Yes. Miracle upon miracle, right before his eyes. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were tied up. They were bound by his best army soldiers. They were pushed to the ground into the furnace. They were free and now the king sees four. And not only that, the fourth has the appearance like the son of God. <laughs> oh, to be a fly on the wall and see the king's face at this time. Verse 25, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, there's been a lot of debate over many generations as to whether this is a Christophany a pre-incarnate vision of Christ, or if this fourth person is an angel. It's not uncommon to see angels described as sons of God in Scripture. Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, and in Job chapter 1, verse 6, and chapter 2, verse 1. Whether this is Christ or an angel, our sovereign God interceded and was with these boys protecting them from the fire. Verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Did you hear that? He said, servants of the Most High God. This is quite the change of mind, isn't it? From mockingly asking, who is this God that will deliver you out of my hand? To calling him now the Most High God. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, verse 27, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. This, as you can imagine, was causing quite the stir. Many of the important people that were bowed down just a few verses back bowing to Nebuchadnezzar's image and happy to worship false gods, were now coming into contact with the power of the real God, the only God. And then continuing into verse 27, the hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. Every aspect of miracle. You'll know yourself if you're around smoke for a few minutes. You'll carry a souvenir around with you for the rest of the day. 
He seems to get into every pore. And here we have no smell, not a hair out of place, and their cloaks were untouched. And then in verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent this his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Nebuchadnezzar here at this point recognises the power is from God. But it's in this moment at least that God is still not his own. Look at how he describes God. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. This wasn't his God. Well, not yet anyway. So let this be a warning to us. That salvation does not come from mentally knowing who God is. Even from being a first-hand witness as to the power of his work through seeing someone else be called and born again. You are not saved through someone else's faith. Whether that be your mum and dad or your, your husband or your wife or whoever. Every single person must know God to be their God. To repent of their own sinful lives in rebellion to God. To have had their heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh. To repent, having turned to Christ and exclusively put their faith in his atoning work on the cross rather than in any of their own works. We must be born again. Then in verse 29, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. At this point, this, this huge gold image standing there, just behind Nebuchadnezzar, must have seemed like the most ridiculous thing in the world. He and all the people have just seen firsthand the providence and power of the very real God of the Bible, how or what can they possibly now do with this huge image? Standing there tall and exposed as a fraud. I wonder if this has any possible application to us here this evening. After us witnessing Christ's power in our own lives. From experience, his abundant grace, his mercy, his patience, his provision, his love. Do we have any unaddressed idol still standing tall? Is there a cycle of sin in our lives that we are allowing to stand? Are there things that come to mind that you know you need to repent of, to stop and to turn away from and to Christ? In Christ, he is able to tear down even the most addictive of sinful habits. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with a temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Galatians chapter 5 verse 16. 
Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then in verse 29 of our text this evening, Nebuchadnezzar is finally beginning to get it. There is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And Christians here this evening, we can all say amen to that, can't we? For those that put their faith in the Son of God. For those that know that they are guilty sinners and without a hope apart from Christ and his atoning work on the cross. For those that repent and are born again. Let's pray.